Welcome to the AP Talks podcast, a new series of conversations by Odemar Piguet about fine watchmaking, heritage, and the cultural space in which the company has evolved, all told through the expert eyes of AP people and guests. I am Bill Prince, writer and journalist, and today, in this very first AP Talks podcast, we will be turning the clock back with my guest, Francois-Henri Benemias, CEO of Odemar Piguet, to relive how the Royal Oak, an iconoclast timepiece, became an icon. A not-so-easy road, as you'll see. Even ten years ago, the fate of this collection was not yet certain. How is everybody? Good. Okay. Let's go. On est bon. Now it's easy to imagine that the Royal Oak was some force of destiny behind it, that it was always going to play out this role for which it's now become the preeminent disruptive mechanical watch of the modern era. The only social media of the time were paparazzi pursuing the jet set around uh, Europe and uh, America. Obviously, um, Gianni Agnelli was spotted wearing the watch in 1974. I wonder how important that sort of growing scent of liberation that came through in the uh, 70s um, with that great sort of post-60s revolt when obviously travel became slightly more democratised and therefore people were looking for individuals who showed the way in terms of the good life. And I wondered for how much that played a part in developing the watch's aura and mystique. The evolution at that time was that people would want to wear watches on a much more global basis at any time. For whatever reason, I can go and swim, do sports. That was the goal. The first adopters of the watch were very known people. Agnelli, you had also the Shah of Iran, you had then slightly later a Giorgio Armani, a Karl Lagerfeld. So people with taste adopted the watch very, very early. And then people looked at them and said, hmm, actually, if they wear that, maybe it's, 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 there is something good there. And it's exactly what we've seen over the last 50 years. And there is always that notion of people that want to be different, want to be at the forefront of something new and say, I saw it before, I knew it before. You know, that sort of pride of saying, yes, I was there first. This will always happen, always. I know this year there's been a lot of talk about the launch of the Royal Oak in 1972, the Big Bang. I consider it to be one of the last transformative moments in modern watchmaking history. April the 15th, 1972, we could walk down that road now, but what I'd like to do is take you on a different path. I'd like to talk about a near-extinction event that happened 40 years later, when Audemars Piguet was coming up for its 40th anniversary for the Royal Oak. And let's say that the Royal Oak had had a good history, but at that time not a recognised great history. You were coming into the business as the CEO when the board was considering even cancelling the 39mm Jumbo Royal Oak. What was going on that the watch itself was under threat when today we're looking back on the most successful watch design of the last 50 years. At the time, there were only two markets, Italy and Germany, were still performing pretty well at selling the jumbo, but everywhere else in the world, the watch would sell eventually, but with big discounts. So we arrived at the 40th anniversary and said, but guys, the whole thing started with the jumbo. We have to tell the story. We have to share it with people. We have to educate, we have to romance, we have to do the whole thing. 40th anniversary exhibition came. It was a sort of a huge wake-up call. That was the rebirth. 
What did you have available to draw on when you created that wonderful exhibition in 2012 that really memorialised Joel Genta's genius in terms of designing a watch as we understand it overnight for the purposes of a market looking for something sporty but refined? I think that the exhibition of the 40th anniversary was the very first extreme professional one. We worked very hard and it was the very first very professional exhibition ever organized in that respect. People went very far, went back to the archives, studied the whole thing to really deliver the true message and the true story about the Royal Oak. And obviously that was a sort of Audemars Piguet 2.0 in that respect. There will be a before and after the celebration of the 40th anniversary. And we are not expecting at that time to see the success that happened. We are we are celebrating, yes, a very important milestone for the Rylog, but at the same time, in terms of pure volumes, per references, we are still very much low-key in that respect. And we saw inquiries starting left and right when the day before it was pretty much the offshore and the following day it became the Rylog. I wouldn't say that it happened overnight, but it went extremely fast. And suddenly, the Rylog was coming back. So it's funny to see that through the course of history of launches, of whether in the fashion world, in the world of watchmaking, or in many other fields as well, cars, at some point, someone makes a huge difference and it might not be looked at the right thing to do then. And eventually, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, people say, mm-hmm, that was a good move. It's 2011. The Royal Oak is coming up for its 40th anniversary. As I understand it, you had been in the US for the decade prior to this date. Where did you see or where did you understand the Royal Oak per se to have been when you came into the company? And where was it standing, would you say, in terms of the sort of global watch market? So first of all, true story, on my very first day of the job in September 1994, they asked me to wear a Royal Oak because that was already the thing that you should wear when you were working for the Marpiguet. I didn't like the design at all. And I was pushing, pushing, pushing until I finally put one on my wrist. And I got to understand quickly the effect because basically the watch grows on you much more than any other watches I've ever put on. And the funny thing is people notice it instantly without even you saying a word. I moved to the United States in 1999. And at that time, yes, we are trying to promote Audemars Piguet. People were not even pronouncing the name of the company the right way. The year 2000 until 2010, 11, the offshore was actually the big thing. People wanted the thick watches and the Royal Oak was phasing out. The Royal Oak now is a large, very successful collection, over 850 separate models, 2,000 SKUs over the years. It, for the first four years, it was one watch representing a tiny parcel of the, uh, the business of Audemars Piguet. At the same time, Audemars Piguet was rebuilding complicated watchmaking in Le Brasseau for the entire industry eventually. And I wonder, why did it take so long for the Royal Oak to become part of that story? Because that was the time you need to actually sort of re-exist. You have to understand, at that time, with the volumes, the quantity that were made by all the very high-end watch companies, they were minimum numbers. The advertising then was just prints. 
No social media, no internet, nothing. The exposure was very, very weak compared to the true potential. It still applies today in a funny way when you think about it. This year, we're going to make 50,000 watches for the world. So there was never that notion of, oh, why it took, why it took so long? Because of the possibilities that we had actually to manufacture, ship, deliver, be exposed to people. That was just a scaling thing, I guess. Being a child in the 80s and, and recognizing the power, I suppose, principally of what was cable TV in the US, but then swiftly became a globalized culture. And people were looking for a much more individualistic take on their lives. And you saw the rise of various cultures around extreme sports, hedonism. And then the internet really grabbed us. And you were rebuilding the business there, in, in, as you describe it, in the early 90s. What was your takeaway? What did you recognize that the Royal Oak could do? And what could that audience do for the Royal Oak? I knew that we had something going on when I was wearing the watch. And I would fly somewhere. And... I would catch someone wearing a right oak as well. If we would see that we would both wear the right oak, we'd start to talk to each other. This was pretty amazing because that could happen with pretty much any kind of watch company. No, it was very much the right oak. The other thing that actually was shocking me at that time is our collection of right oaks were actually looking very weak in windows with our retailers. And so my goal running the US market at that time was to put the watch on the right wrist and tell people, you got to get the watch on loan. Don't even buy it. Wear the watch. Do not say a word to anyone around you. Let it just go and see what's going to happen. Let's see if people make comments. And slowly but surely, one watch at a time, one client at a time, the watches started to take off. It was pretty amazing to see people's reactions still today. When we've got new clients coming who have never, never worn a right oak, even though now the brand is really known and the right oak is so much more known, say, put the watch on, do not say a word, and still the same reaction. It creates something truly unique. I don't know if it's the, the light on the edges of the watch or, or the special sparkle that the watch could get for you, but it's truly special to this day. So in that sense, that element of the enjoyment of the watch has never changed. I remember visiting the 40th anniversary exhibition um, when it was hosted in Paris in 2012. And I couldn't have imagined what was going to happen next in terms of the overall appreciation for the model itself. The, the Jumbo, which was reintroduced as the 15202 ST with the new dial, restoring the, the uh, 1972 original. The watch was recognized, venerated by watch collectors and connoisseurs. And I wonder what was brought to bear by Audemars Piguet and its team of designers and watchmakers and marketeers. I think that people bought into the story. This was the very, very first time actually shared the entire story with the people. And people love the stories where successes are not always built on knowing exactly what you're going to do and how and when. I'd been working for Demar Piguet for more than 10 years already when I finally got the true story. When you finally have the story that you can share with your friends and the story is a beautiful one, it makes sense and people can grasp on that and say, I want to be a part of that world because that's me. I love the fact that it's, it got challenged and it came in the middle of nowhere because people rely on those type of things to say, that's me, I'm like this. 
I want to be looked at someone that is forward thinking, that never takes no for uh, an answer, that will push boundaries, all those type of things. That's the right oak. That's Audemars Piguet. It's so fascinating to hear you talk about that, Francois, because you have the concept line, you have Offshore, and you have the Royal Oak Collection. How do you feel as a cohort of uh, models, they all symbolize the same thing? How have you managed to constrain all of that design, all of that watchmaking brilliance, and yet it remain irredeemably an Audemars Piguet Royal Oak? It's still a work in progress. It's only for the last three, four years that we made a very serious decision that going forward, an offshore, a concept, a Rylog should have their own DNA and brand identity. So we have to find new mechanisms and new ideas to really get to those collection. And that's a very complicated exercise because when you develop a mechanism for a specific watch, ultimately what you want to do is use it as much as you can for the others. We said no this time. We're launching something next year in the concept case that will not appear in the offshore of the Royal Oak. It just will be made for the concept. On a new case, brand new mechanism, that took years actually in the making. In the development of the resource that you now have around the knowledge base that tells the story of the Royal Oak, is there a particular encounter with a Royal Oak wearer that you can recall? Yes. The wearer was actually not a client. It was one of the employees. So I'm working in the MDF, our manufacturer, and I see one of our guys works in uh, research and development. He wears a watch, and I call this in two seconds and say, whoop, 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 whoop. what's that? Say, yeah, hey, boss, there's something we've been working on. And then another guy was coming from the same meeting wearing the same watch, which I'd never seen. These people, without asking me, anything, created the skeleton right oak, the Calibra 31, 32, on their own, the double balance wheel, on their own. It was never something decided at the product committee in the company. And they say, hey, we've been working on it for a little bit of time now, but do you like it, boss? I say, love it. But could you please share this in the earlier stage with me next time? So they were laughing. And that's also the Audemars Piguet spirit because that's exactly what happened for the perpetual calendar. The perpetual calendar mechanism was launched by one of our watchmakers and eventually ended up on the desk of Georges Gollet and say, we should make that. I love that. Yes, you've got your rules and you've got your special uh, processes of developing watches or mechanisms. And sometimes the rules are actually completely uh, broken or not respected. And that's also a part of uh, who we are. And maintaining both, maintaining that forensic approach to the development, the presentation, the product lines, and also allowing for that flexibility, that creativity, that actually um, subterfuge, I suppose you could call it, couldn't you? The ability for your teams to work in isolation and then present something when they're happy with it. Is it something that you can protect? That we can protect and foster? Absolutely. We tell people working on mechanism, or even people not working, but who could get ideas, you're always welcome. If something comes from you guys and it's out of the, the ordinary, sure, we'll see. I will always remember when Julio Papi came to me and said, uh, boss, I've got an idea. 
So you remember our paper calendar was this thickness, and uh, I could do this, but smaller, and, uh, and the world record is that, we could bring it to this. Uh. I say, wow, are you sure it could work? Say, yeah, I'm sure. But then, when we went into meetings that looked at Julio's concept, they said it will never work because this part will actually bend. Julio was fighting hard. Eventually, Julio was right. And the watch is what it is today. And this is opening so many new doors. Now the Royal Oak has become so intrinsic to the story of Odomar Piguet, but you also have to protect the Royal Oak from all of the things that could be done, might be done, and all of your clients would like you to do. So what to you is its intrinsic and viable qualities that can never change? So there are many rules now that we've put in place to protect the integrity of the Royal Oak. Now we are becoming very, very tough on those type of things because of the mistakes we made in the past. A right oak is like this, 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 and that. We're going to allow you to potentially do a little bit of here, a little bit of there. Okay, the rest we will not touch. Don't even try. Now, if you want to play on that field, we have the offshore. Or, slightly different, on the concept, the right oak, you don't touch. So we are very protective now on what's going to happen with that collection. You have to understand, when you are talking about perpetual calendars, it was in 2014, I think, that the guy in charge of the workshop making these perpetual calendars came to me and said, Francois, one more year, and I won't have work to give to my watchmakers anymore. And he told me the same thing about grand complication a year before. And today we have a waiting list, so people have to wait now to get those watches. Because we went almost from zero perpetual calendar to now roughly a thousand pieces a year. I could say, oh, it's so good. Let's make it 3,000. We won't. It's never about the revenues. Then we would sell our soul. So now we've got to stick to the plan. And we've put these numbers in place for every watch, every reference, until 2030 almost. There is an ability to share with your clients, and particularly with collectors, everything you thus far know about the history of the Royal Oak. And I wonder how important that has been in bringing that gravitational pull towards the watch itself by bringing in an audience who can only learn more and more by staying close to Odomar Piguet and reviewing all the hard work that you and your team are doing. It's a mix of everything because we're not also just talking to the collectors of the world. We're also talking to people who are not familiar with the world of Audemars Piguet. We want to share our story with many more people than the people that would actually buy the watches because we need really to open the doors and to be an aspirational brand as well. Maybe a 15-year-old kid will tomorrow say, oh, if one day I can get a watch, I want to get the Royal Oak. Is it a question of going back and retesting everything you think and know about a model like the Royal Oak and seeing where the developmental opportunities lie? Or is it more of a curatorial role at this stage? It's a bit of both. You need the curation of, of this entire venture, no doubt. At the same time, what you need is a vision of what the Royal Oak could look like 10 to 20 or 30 years from now. How can Odomar Piguet stay close to that audience who love the Royal Oak. One watch at a time and one client at a time. We made another mistake for years and years to throw big parties for big celebration with two, three, four, five hundred people. That's not luxury. That's not exclusivity because you don't get to interact with people when there are so many. 
So we are changing also the mindset around promotion, about the way we want to entertain and discuss with our clients. So from that passing of the information between individuals, how do you respond to somebody when you see they're wearing a Boyologue? What is your feeling in your heart? Reward. The reward for the people who have been believing in it for so long, the reward for the watchmakers, the reward for the developers, the reward for all these employees at Odemapige. Humility. When I started to work for Odemapige, it was, as I said, September 1994. Sometimes we are not selling watches for weeks. And to see where we are and the way we've built it and to build the success, that's a reward when you see people just wanting the brand so, so much and say, that's a brand we believe in because that was not always the case. One of my most important things that I'm sharing now with a younger generation joining Audemars Piguet, because when I took the helm of the company, we are 1,200 people. Now we are 2,500 people and we're going to go to 3,000 people. So a lot of people are coming and joining the brand when the brand is absolutely on top. And that could be risky. That could be risky because people don't know how we built it. Do not forget ever who did what and when. Give credit to people who built it one watch at a time, one client at a time. Now you are inheriting a great brand with a lot of success, a lot of desirability, and people say you're the best in the world. Don't take it for granted. Go back to the drawing board every single day and go for it like if it was 20 years ago. If we do that all together, we'll still be good 100 years from now. François Bendemias, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome, Sunshine. Thank you for listening to this first AP Talks podcast. We hope you enjoyed learning more about the Royal Oak and its unique journey that is far from being over. Stay tuned for the second episode with me, Bill Prince, and my next guest, Sebastian Vivas, Heritage and Museum Director of Odomar Piguet, in which we will be discussing the Royal Oak's creation process, reception, commercial success, and extraordinary destiny. Everything you ever wanted to know about an icon and were too afraid to ask.